If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. And the fifth chapter. Start reading in verse uh, chapter. I don't want to read too much. How can you read too much of scripture? Uh, I'll start reading in four sixteen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Actually, verse thirteen. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherers of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherers of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered that his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, if it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, raised from the dead, our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for the transgressions and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have been obtained, have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For a while, we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received Reconciliation. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. I would ask you please to pray for me as I would preach this text. Pray for yourselves as you sit on the proclamation of God's word. I reminded you that, um, that the greatest efforts through it um, sermon ever preached, the greatest uh, and listening ear will profit nothing apart from God's grace. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our God and Heavenly Father, we assemble here this morning from a week of different activities, a week of distractions, a week of temptations, a week of disappointments, a week of joys, rejoicing. And now, Lord, we are called to set apart the things of the world, to put them away from us, and to concentrate upon the Holy Scriptures. I pray, O oh God, that you would be with me. I pray that you would be with the congregation as they hear these things preached, that you would bring them to bear upon their hearts and minds, that you would work grace upon grace, that sanctification might take place. And, Father, we would ask you if any are here who are indifferent to the gospel, who do not care about this day of the celebration of a point in time when Christ was raised from the dead, if there are any here who care nothing about the church, we ask you, O God, to sober them and to bring them to faith and to grant, O God, repentance to them. We ask you, Lord, to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. In my family, we celebrate birthdays with a great amount of zeal. Uh, it's my opinion that if it's your birthday, it's your day. Uh, your day to be celebrated with you in mind. To make it a very, very special day for you. And we have a bunch of them in my family. And we enjoy each one of those days that celebrate it. But also, and no moroseness intended whatsoever, there also comes the last birthday. Does or not? That day when you celebrate your birthday, and it is for the last time that you celebrate your birthday. Now, here's what I want us to do. I'm going to show you I'm not just simply being morose. Uh, I want us to think about religious leaders throughout history. Think about their life and think about their death. Zoroaster, born in 550 B.C., he died sometime either in the latter part of the 5th century, the first part of the 4th century, 6th century, the first part of the 5th, I don't know. Mohammed, born 570 A.D., I do not know when he died, but he's dead, right? He's dead. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, born 1869 and died in 1948, he's dead. Jim Jones, some of you may know who he was, he was a, a heretic, he took a bunch of people with him to Ghana, to Jonestown, uh, there was a mass suicide there at his instruction. Over 900-something people died that day, and that was 1978. He was born in 1931. He died in 1978. Now, what did all these leaders have in common besides being religious leaders? Well, one more. Jesus Christ, born, and we're going to say uh, whenever, Died April 17th. I'm sorry. April 7th. Friday, two days ago. What's the difference in Jesus and all these other religious leaders that I mentioned here in this opening? It's one significant difference. It is the difference 
between true religion and false religion. And that's this. Jesus died Friday. He was raised today, if you will, but several thousand years ago. The difference in all these other religious leaders and Christ is they're dead and he is alive. So in the text this morning, what Paul has in mind here is to give these Christians an assurance of the certainty of their own resurrection from the dead. And I've told you before, Christ didn't die simply to open up the pathway to heaven for us. That's a benefit. That's a grace. That's a blessing that we enjoy as Christians, as we don't have to fear the time that we close our eyes in death after we celebrate our last birthday. For we read in the scriptures that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But it goes beyond that, that Christ secured us to him for everlasting life, which includes our physical bodies. And so Paul then, in an effort to secure these first century believers of the reality of the things to come for them, which are far exceed anything they've known in this life, he does this. If God, or since God, was kind to you, was gracious to you when you were a sinner, how much more will he be gracious to you now that you are justified by faith? That's what he's doing here. He wants to comfort them, wants to assure them. And listen to this. If the reality of the resurrection, your own personal resurrection, grips your heart and you're confident that the day is going to come one day with great certainty, when that grave that has held you forever, how long it might happen to be, is going to give you up, and you're going to come out of that grave whole and glorified, it gives us courage. At least it should give you courage. So often. We fail to meditate upon the blessings and the graces that are ours in Christ Jesus. And I would say this, we take them for granted. (coughs) Something I read not long ago. And it said this, that we have to own the reality of the crucifixion. We have to own it. We have to give ourselves to it so that we think about it day in and day out and the resurrection. I was talking to... uh, our guest, which are sitting out here, that you may look over and notice them uh, uh, at home. And uh, the hymn that says, Be near when I am dying, O show thy cross to me, which I love that hymn. But I think they should have put it like this. Be near when I am dying, O show thy empty tomb to me. Because that's where our guarantee of justification takes place. Not simply in the death of Christ. I know the death is important. I know that death upon the cross of Calvary by Jesus Christ is where he took our sins upon himself. But had he stayed dead, it wouldn't have made any difference. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. And so then this morning, three things very quickly in the first place. The redemption accomplished by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is a life-altering work. If you are converted... If you're a Christian, then when you were converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, your life changed. It changed dramatically. And it should have changed not simply in your standing before the Lord, justification by faith, but in your interest, in your habits, in your love 
as well. And notice how he begins chapter 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. This is one of the uh, cries of the Reformation. One of the themes of the Reformation, is it not? Sola fide. Faith alone. Faith alone. And this verse here is a causative verse because the biblical truths stated throughout the rest of the book. He brings now to this, this is kind of a crescendo in the middle of the orchestra, uh, middle of the, uh, the symphony. Verse 1 of chapter 5 looks back on everything that Paul has written so far in this letter to the Romans. So what is this? He's written, well, it is in this, that because Christ has been raised from the dead, John chapter, Romans 1, 4, he has been verified to be who he said he was going to be. Proved to be the Son of God, proven to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. And then because the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe, he tells us that we are justified by faith. And there it again, Habakkuk 2.4 comes into play again and again and again and again in the New Testament. Justification by faith, by trust in God. And we read of this Abraham, this uh, one who was well, well known throughout the Old Testament, certainly well known to the people of, of Israel in the days of old. It says here he was justified by faith. He believed God. When he was told that he would have a child by Sarah, and that through that child and another child and another child ultimately become the blessing to the world, which is Christ. Through his seed and his descendants came the Lord Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of the promise. All the world, he says to Abraham, going to be blessed through you. Ultimately, through the birth of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Abraham believed God. Even when he was as good as dead, we read here, he believed God. His faith did not waver. And so it was not because Abraham picked up uh, and moved out of Ur of the Chaldees to the land of promise. It was not because he offered sacrifices. It was not because he uh, applied the sign of the old covenant upon himself and his children. None of these things. It is because he believed God. He trusted in the word that God had told him. And again, when all evidence... All, all medical information. I'm going to say this is impossible. He was 100 years old. You know, father children when you're 100 years old. His wife was barren. She couldn't have children. And it was God trying to play a joke upon this man. You're going to have, she's going to have a child. This time next year, I'm going to come back and there's going to be a child. And you remember what Sarah did? She laughed. Even what the Lord did. Why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. But yeah, you did. Why did you laugh? Do you think sometimes that uh, God uh, hears us laughing because we don't believe really the promises of God as we should? This can't happen. This can't be true. This can't possibly be something that is going to take place. Is God really involved in this situation in my life at all? Or has he abandoned me, though he says he's not going to? I don't see the evidence of his help here at all. And we do what Sarah did in unbelief. She laughed and did not believe the Lord. Oh, yes, you did laugh, he says here. So Abraham, 
justified, justified by faith. And notice the great benefit of this back again in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by belief in God, by trusting in him, it is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, our nation has its enemies, does it not? People that don't like us. People that would like to destroy us. I guess throughout your life you may possibly have had enemies as well that would seek to uh, sabotage something in your life, perhaps. Well, there ain't no enemy. Listen to this. There ain't no enemy. If God's your enemy, and nothing like that. Nothing like that. And so there was a time here, according to what is written by the apostle, when we didn't have peace with God. When peace was something that was not a part of my relationship between myself and my creator. For the Bible tells us in the the Old Testament and the New, there's none who does good. There's none who is righteous. There's none who seeks after God. Not one we read. And Paul brings that out in chapter 3 of the book of Romans. There's none, not one, who seeks after the Lord. And so we read here, well, why is it then that, that uh, we have faith? Or why is it that God saved us? Is it that this, that God saw we had potential to be very good people? We had potential, you see. He saw that you were going to be a Sunday school teacher. And you had potential for all kind of good things. And so he, he saved you. That is not true. What God saw when he looked at you, what he saw when he looked at me, was an individual who despised him, who hated righteousness, who hated holiness, who hated the idea of being accountable to God. That's what he saw. And he also saw this. Apart from his intervention, by his grace, apart from that working of God on your behalf, you would continue on, on that path of destruction. It's not at all that he saw, well, this one's going to do such great things for my kingdom, I'm going to save him and bring him into that relationship by grace. No. He loved us. He loved us in spite of we were. He loved us in spite of what we were doing. He loved us in spite of what we were going to do. The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you to myself in loving kindness. You see, there it is. Uh, the impetus behind our coming to a relationship with God through Christ rests with God. Rest with the fact that he loved us. And there was nothing lovable about us as we lived our lives before a holy and gracious God. We have peace With God, he says here, because of the resurrection of Christ and God's grace through faith, we have been justified by faith. You read here, well, here's somebody who may be thinking this. Isn't he the father of everybody? Isn't he the father? I mean, God is love. He's kind, he's gracious, and he's merciful. 
doesn't he consider everybody his child? And I would ask you this, who told you that? Where did you read that? Where did you hear that? Because it's not true. It simply is not true. The Bible speaks again and again that God is angry with the wicked. The Bible tells us that it is a dreadful thing, a fearful thing, an unimaginably horrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. People live their lives with the supposition, never going to have to deal with God. I don't believe it. I don't accept it. I refuse to allow it to influence my life at all. People believe that. It's not true. We read in the Bible that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. That's an address to the church. It's Paul addressing the church there. We also read further on in the scriptures that uh, there will be those at the coming of Christ who will call for the mountains to fall upon them and hide them. So there will be no joy. There will be no celebration on the part of those who come under the wrath and condemnation of God. He is, listen to this, he is the father of his people. Our father, which art in heaven, as Jesus starts that Lord's prayer, the model of the prayer. He is our father for those who love him, for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he loves us. He takes care of us moment by moment, day by day. For those who refuse to accept his Savior, he is a judge to be feared. A judge to be feared. Well, how does that change then? What it is by coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it has changed. So we are justified by faith. We have peace with God. And it is through and only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we recognize the dire straits of the race of man is is a pitiable condition. Uh, The uh, consternation as we would somehow and in some way seek to uh, live our life in such a way that we don't don't fear death. George C. Scott, he was an actor. He won an Academy Award for the role of Patton back in 1970, which he didn't accept the award. He had a bad heart. He was on Larry King Live one time. And uh, in the interview, uh, he almost died. And, of course, he was spared. Larry King said, uh, were you afraid? No. What do you think happens when you die? Nothing. Just kind of go into a state of non-existence. You don't find that in the Bible anywhere either. So it is through the hardness of one's heart, it is through the blindness of one's eyes, that people refuse to accept the reality that we are accountable to God. And the way that we have life and peace is the sacrifice of his blessed son. That's how. In that while we were yet sinners, you see, it says in the scriptures, Christ died for us. And then he goes on to say this, you know, somebody might be willing to die for a good man. Somebody might be brave enough uh, to put their life at stake and be willing to give up their life for someone who is good. 
That's a rare thing, he says. But not many people would give up their life for bad men. That's not me saying he'd lie to do that kind of thing. But then he says this. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of our God, while we were yet those who still despised him in his ways, Christ died for us in that condition of hopelessness. You see, that's the gospel. That's the beauty of God's love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In that while we were still those who opposed him, Christ died for us. And so it is that the dire straits of man, the dire straits of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he cried on the cross of Calvary, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the last words, it is finished. He had drained the cup of wrath for the sins of his people. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. What's that hymn? Those who take sin but lightly fail to recognize the cost that Christ paid for you to be right with God, for you to have peace with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we can say this, it was because of David Wakeland. It was, see, I started naming people. People go, why did you name me? <laughs> because of Melinda Wakeland? Because of others in the church who I will not name? Lest they get angry? That's why. That's why. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the sins of his people. And we know that God is righteous and God is just. He cannot tolerate sin. It's contrary to his nature, contrary to his character. And so what he did, instead of punishing you, instead of punishing me, he punished his son to the full extent of his wrath and condemnation. That's what happened. In that while we were yet sinners, in that while we were still estranged from our God, so Christ then, as he gave that work, was an efficacious work indeed. By his stripes we are healed. By his death we have life. And what it says here in the scriptures, at the right time, at the right moment, as prescribed by God, the, the whole purpose, the whole uh, exhibition of the gospel is not a second thought. It was from eternity past. At the right moment, at the right time, he died for us. As God had determined from eternity past, he died for us that we might have life. Such love, love at him, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And the last thing is the resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ uh, has established eternal benefits. We have not begun 
to experience the greatness of God's love for us. We have not begun to live in the great treasures of what Christ has accomplished for us by his life and death and by his resurrection. We are saved from the wrath of God. And now he looks at us and he calls us his children. The eternal God calls you his child. And I love that verse again. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what great things God has in store for those who love him. If God was merciful to you when you were still a sinner, apart from grace, you're still a sinner, but apart from grace, how much more then can we rest assured that we are going to be raised from the dead and that we're going to enjoy the richness of God's grace? As John Calvin said this, if God had mercy on the wicked, talking about before conversion, talking about the death of Christ for people who were wicked, much more easily will he keep those restored to his favor so that the Christian need not fear God's wrath. Christ took care of that. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, has a book. I have it in my office. I've referred to it before, this particular chapter. It's called That One Certain Sin. And in that, he refers to something that someone has done and they just can't seem to get over it. They can't seem to get beyond it. It continually gnaws at their conscience. Let me ask you a question. If God doesn't hold the sin against you, why do you hold it against yourself? If God does not hold that sin against you, if you have repented, you're trusting Christ for your salvation, you're seeking to live a life that's pleasing to him. That sin is in the past. Why continue to cling to it if God does not hold it against you? You're basically saying at that point, well, I don't really trust Christ to have done everything. That's what you're saying in effect. That's what you're saying in effect. If he was so gracious and kind to us to forgive us our sins while we were still his enemies, how much more will he be kind to us and care for us? throughout eternity. Mark Lowry Jones said this, nothing can give greater assurance of the certainty of our salvation than the very love of God. I'll read it again. Nothing can give greater assurance of the certainty of our salvation than the very love of God. Listen to this. The gospel message is a love story. Okay? The gospel message is a love story. A story of unmerited love. As our God loved us so much that he gave his only son to die for us. And that son who died for us and was held by the power of death for a time took upon himself our condemnation and wrath and was raised from the dead on the third day. Do you this morning know the love of God as you ought? Are you this morning trusting Christ for your salvation? If you're not trusting Christ for your salvation, you will not grasp God's love. It won't make any sense to you. But don't you see God's love expressed in the gift of his son? And that what drove Christ to come to the cross was a love for a people who were undeserving and unkind and had no interest in redemption. Then it makes sense. That is all a great love story that God has for you 
as his child. Do you love Jesus this morning? Are you trusting Christ for your salvation? If you're not, I would encourage you to do so. And if you're a Christian this morning, does the gospel excite you? Or is it boring? Same old story again and again and again. Yeah. Because the greatest story ever told, the greatest story that unfolded in history is the message of the gospel. It's interesting. At one time, there was a certain amount of respect for Christ by the world. And you had uh, B.C., before Christ, A, the year of our Lord. Then they changed it. Common era and before common era. Why did they do that? They should have just changed the date. Okay, now we're going to do that. Year one was three years ago. This is year three. Common era and before common era. You can't do that because still Christ is the dividing line in history. They can't change it. It's still 2023. They can't change that. Although it seems like they despise him so, they can't even acknowledge that the years unfold according to the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of our Savior. Listen. We have not been promised a life free from heartache. We have been promised God's presence with us in a home in glory forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, our